Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. South Korea is located in an important strategic position in Northeast Asia. It only has a land border with one country, North Korea. But Japan lies across the waters of the east, where the sun rises. And over to the west, across the Yellow Sea, is China. Washington DC is 7,000 miles away. Nevertheless, the United States makes its presence felt by maintaining huge troop battalions in South Korea. All this puts the country at the center of great power rivalry. Today, we're asking the question, how is South Korea's relationship with China changing? And our guest is ideally placed to speak on that topic, as the Korean Peninsula is the main area of his research at the University of Oxford. He's Dr. Edward Howell, a lecturer in politics. Edward, welcome back. Can you start by giving us an overview of the current South Korean president, Mr. Yoon? I think first and foremost, we need to remember that the South Korean administration now under um, Yoon Suk-yeol is a conservative administration. It marks a radical departure from that of Moon Jae-in, um, I guess on three main areas. Firstly, with respect to domestic policy. Secondly, in terms of South Korea's international relations and foreign policy, particularly how South Korea envisions its own role in international relations with respect to the United States, with respect to China, and with respect to international relations more broadly. Thirdly, closer to home, with respect to North Korea. Um, we know that um, Moon Jae-in's administration really was characterized by um, several attempts to bolster economic and political cooperation with the North, which ultimately did not bear much fruit. Well, thanks for that clear explanation. So does the fact that Mr. Yoon leads a conservative administration mean that the goodwill towards China is drying up? Now, South Korea is placing all its eggs in the American basket. To say that South Korea is placing all of its eggs in the American basket perhaps doesn't quite capture the, the complex nature uh, of the situation. The UN administration faces a challenge, which is how to maintain its relationship with the United States on the one hand, its political relationship, its security relationship, but on the other hand, to maintain its economic relationship with China. China is South Korea's largest trading partner. 90% of South Korea's imports of crude oil comes through the South China Sea. And we also know that China is trying to leverage this knowledge that South Korea is in this dilemma. We'll talk more about China in a moment, but let's think about the regional politics. We hear a lot about the concept of the so-called free and open Indo-Pacific. I think it was a phrase that was first coined by Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was uh, murdered this year. Mr. Trump 
was a good friend of Mr. Abe, and he used the phrase a lot. And I know it goes down well in Australia and indeed in the United Kingdom. What does South Korea think of the free and open Indo-Pacific as a concept? Yes, you're, you're correct, Duncan, in the sense that we have noticeably moved in broader discourse in international relations from rhetoric of the Asia-Pacific to the Indo-Pacific. With respect to East Asia, this shift in rhetoric to the Indo-Pacific is in no small part owing to a revival of the Quad. And we've seen South Korea and the US, as I've mentioned, not only reaffirm, but upgrade their ties to a comprehensive strategic alliance following the meeting between President Yoon and Joe Biden in May of this year. So on paper, Seoul, particularly under, under Yoon Suk-yeol, appears very open and supportive of this free and open Indo-Pacific. It forms part of Yoon's desire for South Korea to be what he terms a global pivotal country, which he has said advances global discussions in line with shared democratic principles. And Yoon has also outlined his vision for Seoul's Indo-Pacific strategy specifically, particularly in trilateral meetings with um, Prime Minister Kishida of Japan and also with Biden, calling for greater collaboration with Japan, Australia and New Zealand. So this is a sort of vision so to speak. And on, on the other hand, we must also consider how ideas of a South Korean Indo-Pacific strategy, ideas of multilateral collaboration is vociferously criticised by China, fearing that it's basically an anti-China coalition of states. Well, I think it's time to talk about the Quad then. Australia, the US, India and Japan are all part of this informal security pact called the Quad. It's pretty clear that its main intention is to challenge China. Do you think that South Korea will join the Quad? We've seen South Korea already participating in the Quad Plus format, which involves working groups. So this is, despite not being a direct member of Quad, even if the Quad member states do not explicitly expand the actual membership of the organization, South Korea can, and in my view it should, continue to participate in these multilateral initiatives, whether in terms of technology, um, we've seen questions of the deployment of 5G and 6G in the Indo-Pacific, maritime security, which we know in the, the Northeast Asian region is becoming increasingly precarious, um, vaccine partnerships as well in the wake of, um, of the coronavirus. Whether South Korea will or will not join the Quad, I think is not a simple question because there is one argument that says that by joining the Quad, there is a public fear that China could retaliate in one way or another. There is a question of potential Japanese reticence towards South Korea joining Quad because of relationships between Seoul and Tokyo. South Korea has an extremely capable and dynamic foreign minister, Park Yin. Um, 
I'd love to meet him one day. In fact, it would be great to have him as a guest on this podcast. Now, he appears to have a good rapport with the Chinese foreign minister, State Councillor Wang Yi. Can you tell us a bit about their relationship, Edward? It's certainly an interesting one because we know that on their agenda at their recent meeting in Qingdao, um, regional security featured quite prominently. And within this idea of regional security, obviously features North Korea's denuclearization, as well as questions of economic cooperation as well. And this is particularly interesting given how China and South Korea have rather different starting points and worldviews on these issues. So for instance, we know that for China, security and a strong state is the foundation for economic development. For a state to be economically prosperous, it must be secure. We have just witnessed the 30th anniversary of official normalization of relations between the People's Republic of China and South Korea, the Republic of Korea, on the 24th of August, which occurs within the backdrop of rather sour relations between Washington and Beijing. Both Foreign Minister Park and President Yoon say that they want to improve relations with Japan. From a diplomatic perspective, what challenges do you think that they face? The history issue is one that always comes up. I'm referring to Japan's annexation of the then United Korea from 1910 to 1945, as well as the comfort women and forced labour issues which have remained lasting sticking points in relations between Tokyo and Seoul, particularly regarding questions from South Korea about the extent of Japan's actual apology for these issues in the past. Now, we see historical relations cropping up very recently. Japan's Prime Minister Kishida sent a ritual offering to the highly controversial Yasukuni Shrine, which commemorates Japanese soldiers, including war criminals. And we must note that this issue has historically and in the present day upset both South Korea and China. Both states have said that Japan must learn from history and demonstrate remorse. And we have not actually seen a concrete demonstration of this on, from the part of Japan. Japan's foreign policy is facing issues at the moment because of domestic policy, not least revelations of the links between the ruling LDP and the Unification Church, infamously once led by um, the South Korean Moon sung Yun. And news reports have suggested that more than 100 Japanese MPs, 80% of whom belong to the LDP, have connections with the church. And what's more, the murderer of the late Prime Minister Abe explicitly said that he targeted Abe owing to his links to the church. So domestic politics, not only in South Korea, but also in Japan, is proving to be an issue here as well. And I think we must remember that particularly in the East Asian region, foreign relations and domestic relations are inextricably intertwined. We haven't yet talked about North Korea, although that's a topic that you know well. Uh, from my perspective, it seems that President Yoon Suk-yeol is attempting to coax the North Koreans 
back to the negotiating table with economic incentives, food, infrastructure, investment, hospitals, and so on. Yet it seems that the North Koreans are flatly not interested. Is that how you see it? At the moment, North Korea's level of interest is very, very low. But Yoon's, what he called an audacious vision, really is not that novel. This is rather similar to the vision espoused by the former conservative South Korean president, Im Young-bak, his Vision 3000, where he pledged to increase North Korea's GDP on the condition that North Korea denuclearize first. And North Korea viewed this approach as utterly absurd, primarily because any economic concessions would be contingent upon some form of disarmament. And Yoon has said similarly. He said, basically, if North Korea ceases its nuclear development and embarks on a process for denuclearization, then it will be rewarded. We know that North Korea shows very little, if any, intention of en engaging in any process for denuclearization acceptable to the international community. And we've witnessed this recently with respect to Kim Yo-jong, the sister of Kim Jong-un, making a series of expletive-ridden diatribes against the South, blaming South Korea for bringing COVID into the DPRK, threatening to retaliate if any confrontation were to commence. And yet again, we're going to see, in my view, North Korea increasingly play the blame game on South Korea, on the United States, and use this as a way of justifying its continuation of the status quo. And by that, I mean not engaging in any efforts to denuclearize, but in fact, accelerate its nuclear ambitions. Well, thank you, Edward. Uh, you've really helped us to understand the complex web of international relations in Northeast Asia. That was Dr. Edward Howell, a politics lecturer from New College, University of Oxford. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website. The website is SOAS, that's S-O-A-S dot A-C dot U-K. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.